Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Hebrews 1, 10 through 12 is a confusing passage for many of us. It seems to say that Jesus created the heavens and the earth in the beginning. Today, we are beginning a three-part series in which Dr. Jerry Werewolf will address this important passage in context. Our first part is Werewolf's presentation from last year's UCA conference. In this overview, he reviews the context extending from chapter 1 all the way to 2 verse 8. Next, he presents lexical connections between Hebrews 1 and wisdom literature. He concludes that Hebrews 1, 10 through 12 is a wisdom Christology text, attributing to Jesus what wisdom had accomplished prior to his birth. Here now is episode 449, Intertextuality and Interpretation of Hebrews 1 with Jerry Werewolf. talk with you guys today about Hebrews chapter 1, a very challenging Christological passage in the New Testament. Particularly, we're going to be focusing on verses 10 through 12. My talk is entitled, Intertextuality and Interpretation of Hebrews 1, 10 through 12, and it will become apparent why those two descriptors are relevant. The outline of my talk is that we're going to talk about the context of Hebrews chapter 1. Then we're going to look at a section called a, a katina, which is a series of scripture citations or quotations in verses 5 through 13, and their theme and purpose within chapter 1. Then we're going to look specifically at verses 10 through 12 and to whom they are addressed, and then how to interpret verses 10 through 12. And to begin my talk, I'd like to read Hebrews chapter 1 with you. God, having spoken from old time to the fathers through the prophets in many parts and in many ways, has at the end of these days spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he has given form to the ages, who is the reflection of his glory and the exact representation of of his nature, and is upholding all things by his powerful word. After he had accomplished the cleansing for sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did he say at any time, You are my son, today I have become your father? And again, I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. And when he again brings the firstborn into the inhabited world, he says, And let all the angels of God pay homage to him. And of the angels, it says, Who makes his angels as winds, and his ministers as a flaming fire. But of the Son, it says, Your throne is God forever and ever, and the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness rather than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. 
They will perish, but you continue on, and they will all grow old as does a garment, and you will roll them up like a cloak, and they will be changed like a garment, but you are the same, and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he said at any time, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are about to inherit salvation? When reading a passage of scripture, one of the principles of exegesis is to be able to have a perspective of the context. And like context in literature, we have context in life. I'd like to bring an analogy of like a map where we see the way that a community is laid out. This is often the way that context works. That context shows what pieces are connected together or segmented and which ones go with uh, some and which ones go with others. But there are many different levels to context by which you can organize the pieces and find the connections. And in literature, a literary context is made up of multiple levels. I like to diagram it with these concentric circles. It's like a series of, of rings, which each one gets a little wider and includes a little more in it. And this diagram is about interpreting the literary context of the Bible. And when we approach a passage in scripture, we need to understand that there will be multiple contextual levels that will be at work that we need to draw upon in order to determine meaning. As we examine Hebrews 1, 10 through 12, we'll be pulling data from several contexts in these several different levels of context to shed light on its meaning. Hebrews can be broken up into five different major sections, contextual sections. One is verses 1, 1 through 2.18, where Christ is superior to the angels. 3, 1 through 4.13, Christ is superior to Moses. 4.14 through 7.28, Christ is superior to Aaron. And 8.1 through 10.18, Christ's new covenant ministry is superior to the old covenant. And then lastly, in 10.19 through 13.17, exhortations to endure and continue in faith. Our passage appears in the first section of the epistle, but just because our passage appears within this section, we must still determine to what extent and degree the surrounding context impacts it. Hebrews chapter 1 begins by talking about God speaking in the past to the fathers through the prophets in different ways, but has at the end of these last days, or at the end of these days, spoken to us by a son. There's already a contrast being set up here at the beginning of the epistle, where God is speaking in one way through the prophets long ago, but then now in these last days, or at the end of these days, he is spoken through a son. An initial comparison is being made here. And it can be ascertained that the subject of the Son is the prominent theme that the author has in mind, all the way through the end of verse 13. The question that we must ask is, how far does the context about the Son extend? Does it go to the end of the chapter in verse 14, part of chapter 2, or all of chapter 2? And secondarily, which parts of the surrounding context should be used to inform the meaning of verses 10 through 12 in chapter 1 and why? Why? 
There's a connection between chapters 1 and chapter 2 that I'd like to point out. The first verse of chapter 2 has a connecting phrase, diatuta, and in English this means, for this reason. Now, this is a, a common introductory formula that indicates deductive reasoning. Uh, deductive reasoning is just a basic form of reasoning where you draw conclusions from premises. You start out with a, a, general, a statement or a proposition. And then you examine the logical inference that it makes to a conclusion. It usually follows a series of steps, and the simplest form that you might be familiar with is a syllogism. If you have A, and then that implies then you have B, and there's some logical relationship between the two. What this phrase, diatuta, also shows us, because the deductive reasoning is that it is dependent on preceding material, which would be chapter 1. And it switches to what's called a paranetic section. This is a section of exhortation, where the author is speaking to the reader directly. This is important because this shows that the context extends into chapter 2 to show the contrast between angels and the sun, where the author is focusing on the sun, but he's contrasting the sun with angels. And in verses 1 through 4, he does this through an interesting Jewish hermeneutic called a kalwahomer. A kalwahomer is a, a, a Jewish hermeneutical technique that's common in the New Testament writings. And this rule, the kalwahomer, it posits that what applies in a, a lesser situation or a less important case, a lighter case you could say, that it also implies in a more important situation or a heavier case. And the Kalwa Homer, it signifies that something that is valid in one case because of a relation to something else then proves it to be valid as well. For example, in here, this contrast is being played out between the sun and the angels. This is a contrast that is about the Sinai covenant that the angels are thought to mediate as the author speaks about it. The word that was spoken through the angels was legally binding. If, if that word that came long ago, if that was legally binding, which is the lighter case, then certainly that which was spoken by the Lord, the Son, that is legally binding as well, and even more so. And the word that came through the Son is a reference to the New Covenant, his New Covenant ministry. The context of chapter 1 is reaching now into chapter 2, and this is going to be important. There's a lexical link as well with the beginning of chapter 2, verse 5, with the introductory particle gar, for. It shows this, uh, it's a marker of reason or cause. So why is this comparison being made? Because... God did not put the coming world in subjection to angels. But if their word was legally binding, then what about the Son? So I'm trying to build this contrast here between these two. The argument continues, though, after verse 5, to introduce another quotation. This one in verses 6 through 8 here reads, Instead, someone has some testified somewhere saying, What is man that you think about him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower than the angels for a little while. You crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You put all things in subjection under his feet. Following on the tales of verse 5, 
This quote has an undesignated introduction, which is different than chapter 1, where it's typically to the angels or to the sun. But this one, it connects logically with the particle gar, 2 verses 1 through 4, which are dependent through deductive reasoning on the preceding material in chapter 1, which would be 5 through 13, and then the commentary on, in verse 14. But before we walk through why this quote comes up here in verses 6 through 8 in chapter 2, and how it contributes to the context directly in chapter 1, there's one other additional clue I want to share with you guys that relates to the context. And this is a word, uh, a repeated word that is oikumene, and it occurs only twice in this letter, this epistle to the Hebrews. Once in verse 6 in chapter 1, and then again in verse 5 in chapter 2. The only two occurrences of this word are meaningful as the idea of the inhabited world that is being contrasted with what the sun is brought into rule over and the angels that it is not put, the coming world is not put in subjection to them, that that is a linkage, a lexical linkage between these two ideas. So these two contexts are dependent upon each other. In addition, the idea of subjection that is mentioned in verse 5 in chapter 2, it correlates with imagery we're going to look at in chapter 1 that refers to Psalm 110, where it states, sit on my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, going back to chapter 2, verse 6, with the quotation, it's a quotation from Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. And Psalm 8 is about God's destined reign of humankind over creation, and that includes the angels. But Jesus is identified in verse 9 as that representative man. And this plays into chapter 1 that we read because it explains how the Son became greater than the angels. It says in chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, after he'd accomplished the cleansing for sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. There's that Psalm 110 allusion. Having become so much better than the angels, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is proven to be what Jesus has accomplished in verse 9 because he has now been crowned with glory and honor. He was made a little lower than the angels, the author says, but has now been crowned with glory and honor. One of the important scholars on the book of Hebrews, actually the mentor and advisor to N.T. Wright at Oxford, uh, George Bradford Card, was especially invested in studying Hebrews. And he had something very insightful to say about this particular passage and how it relates to chapter 1. He writes, the psalm, referring to Psalm 8 here, is quoted only at 2, verses 6 through 8, but it controls the argument of the preceding chapter. For from the first mention of angels at chapter 1, verse 5, throughout the formidable katina of text in chapter 1, the author's one aim is to illustrate the theme of the psalm that man has been destined by God to glory, excelling that of the angels, and that this destiny has been achieved by Christ, both individually and representatively, as the pioneer of man's salvation, who came to lead many sons into their destined glory. What Card is saying 
is that if you want to really understand the context of chapter 1, you have to look in chapter 2 to where the author is leading the argument. And Psalm 8 is the culmination of his point in verse 4 in chapter 1 about how Jesus has become greater than the angels because he was made lower than them but is no longer below them. He is now above them. And so to see Psalm 8 functioning as a guiding context is going to come into play as we continue to investigate chapter 1, especially verses 10 through 12. So to summarize that, the contrast between Christ and the angels in chapter 1, it should be read in light of Christ's exaltation as identified by Psalm 8 in chapter 2. And now having been seated at God's right hand and receiving glory and honor, Christ has become greater than the angels. I want to go through the rest of chapter 2 just to explain the way that the rest of the section works out contextually. Hebrews 2, 10 through 13 reads, For it was appropriate for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who makes holy and those who are made holy are all from one, which is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters saying, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the church, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, look, here I am. And the children whom God has given to me. Verses 10 through 13, they provide an explanation about the last clause in verse 9, identifying Jesus, who's now been crowned with glory and honor. God saw it fitting to make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. God's intention is to lead humankind to his desired goal for them. The glory that God intended, which is celebrated in Psalm chapter 8, is not what has been experienced. But God graciously decreed that his Messiah would rescue humanity through suffering and death and be the pioneer for salvation, being made perfect through his sufferings, which is a reference to both his death and his resurrection, including his ascension. And therefore, the sufferings of Jesus are appropriate or fitting for God's goal to be attained and where we can experience the glory that he had planned and destined for humankind. And so Jesus was made perfect through his death so that he could lead many sons to glory. That's how the idea of the son as Jesus, this representative man, can then be the pioneer of salvation to lead humankind to the glory that God destined for them. And then the last paragraph here in chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Now, since the children participate fully in blood and flesh, in a similar way, he also himself shared the same, so that through death he could make ineffective the one who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free all those who were held in slavery all their lives by their fear of death. Indeed, it hardly needs to be said that he did not come to help angels, but to give help to the seed of Abraham. This being the case, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect in order to become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God so that he could wipe away the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he suffered, he is able to help those who are tempted. Verses 14 through 18, they draw out the implication of Christ's solidarity with his brothers and sisters. That was affirmed in verses 11 through 12, where it says that the one who makes them holy and the ones who are made holy are all from 
one or all of one. Jesus had to be made like his brothers and sisters in order to accomplish God's purposes for humankind. And this would be the liberation from the power of death, being made holy, and receiving the glory that humankind was destined to experience. By being made like his brothers and sisters, he could be the faithful and merciful high priest. The next section here to talk about verses 5 through 13, which is the katina, to identify what is the theme and the purpose of this section. I'm going to argue that it has a unified and coherent theme and pattern. And first, I'm going to identify that in verse 4, the son becoming better than the angels, that this is followed then by a series of seven Old Testament quotations in this katina between verses 5 through 13. And what the author is seeking to answer here through this series of Old Testament quotations is what is the status and role of the son vis-a-vis the angels? Is he greater? And if so, how? Let me demonstrate and substantiate it. And the author now goes to great lengths to substantiate the claim that he is greater than the angels and therefore holds greater authority. This section, verses 5 to 13, is a literary unit. How do we know this? We know this because of a type of literary device called an inclusio. An inclusio, which is very common in New Testament writings, is where you have a section that begins and ends with the same or similar language. And what this signals, an inclusio signals that the reader should see between those two bookends that the uh, writer is intending to support some argument or some point. And so what we find here is in verse 5 and verse 13, we have a similar question being asked by the author at the beginning and end of this katina. For to which of the angels did he say at any time? In verse 5. And then 13, but to which of the angels has he said at any time? In the Greek, the, the language is extremely similar. And this inclusio shows that the katina of Old Testament scriptures is a unit and works together. And the aim then is singular to try to contrast the sun with the angels. Furthermore, there are thematic connections here. This phrase, sit at my right hand, that we get from Psalm 110, verse 1. It's alluded to in verse 3, but then explicitly quoted in verse 13. Verse 3 and verse 4 form kind of that thesis that I showed you guys for this section. And verse 13 ends the katina. And this shows that the exaltation of Christ that Psalm 110 points to, that is, it's a recurring motif. Actually, Psalm 110 is the most popular Old Testament scripture in the New Testament. It's either quoted or alluded to 33 times in such places like Romans 8.34, where it's, who is the one who will condemn? It's Christ Jesus, the one who died. More than that, he was raised out from among the dead, who is now at the right hand of God, or Ephesians 1.20 that he that worked in Christ when he raised him out from among the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, Colossians 3.1, that since you were raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. This idea of Christ being exalted is going to be a critical idea that the author is developing here. Now, when we start the Katina in verse 5, the first references from Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7.14 are of particular interest in this exaltation motif. Because drawing upon this language of, you are my son, today I've become your father, or I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son, 
This language is not about Jesus Christ as the unique or only begotten Son of God. This is coronation language that reaches back to the Old Testament during the time of King David. These are words spoken to King David when he became king. The idea of sonship is a coronation language showing anointing, that God's king is being anointed and he is going to be a father to him. And as the king, the king is going to function as a son with respect to God. Now, in 2 Samuel 7, 14, that's a context where David is given this promise that he would have an heir on his throne and that, he would, uh, that God would be a father to his son that would take over the throne. So it's just very figurative language, but what it indicates is it indicates that there's not just an exaltation, but this coronation of God's anointed one brings in this idea of the status and role of God's enthroned Messiah King. And so enthronement and exaltation come together in Hebrews chapter 1 to talk about the way that Christ has been lifted up. He's not just sitting at God's right hand in an exalted uh, sense of status, but he's also given a role as an enthroned king. And that's a transfer of position, which explains how Jesus has become greater. He goes from on earth in his ministry to dying upon the cross, being raised from the dead and ascending into heaven and being seated at God's right hand, the place of honor and power, second only to God. And Christ is the anointed king who is reigning in heaven. And we can see this from in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes about how it's necessary for Christ or Jesus to reign until God has put all his enemies under his feet. And this relates back to Psalm 110 that says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So the next question is, well, if we narrow it down now to our our passage of interest, verses 10 through 12, who is that addressed to? There's a Greek construction here that I think reveals the answer. It's called a mende construction. And it happens between verses 7 and verses 8. And the sense that it gives is sometimes obscured in the English. It would come across like, and on the one hand of the angels, it says, and this would be in verse 7. Whereas when you go to verse 8, it'd be, but on the other hand of the sun, it says. And then we have to ask the question, well, in verse 10, we don't have a mendet construction, we have a, a chi, which is the conjunction, just a normal coordinating conjunction meaning and. How are we supposed to see the connection between verses 7 and 8 with this contrasting conjunction with mendet and the chi? Well, the introductory chi, I believe, has an implied ellipsis with verse 8, meaning that it is also speaking about what is to the sun. And that then, if it is coordinated with verse 8, that places it in contrast with verse 7 through that mendet construction, thereby expanding the contrast in verse 7 with the angels. Now, I can demonstrate this graphically, perhaps, to give you guys a better sense of the way to look at this. If you have a, a balanced scale and you put on one side men, on the one hand, we have the angels in verse 7, which the author is speaking about. He makes his angels as wind and his ministers as flaming fire. This is spoken of the angels. They are ministers. They are servants. That's, that's on one hand. Now, on the other hand, 
he talks about the son. The son has been given a scepter of a kingdom, and he will rule forever in verses 8 and 9. And then in verses 10 through 12, I believe that it's also referring to the son. And we're going to get to then, well, what does that mean if it's referring to the son? Now, I'm concluding this based upon the theme and the purpose of verses 5 through 13 with the inclusio and the repeated motif of Psalm 110 about being seated at God's right hand and the grammatical syntax of this section. And so then I'm confident that verses 10 through 12 are speaking about the Son. Let's step back to where we started from. Hebrews chapters 1 and 2, they form the scope of context for understanding the katina of verses 5 through 13 in chapter 1. The katina of 5 through 13, the focus is on the exaltation and enthronement of the Son. And verses 10 through 12 are addressed to the Son. How then should we interpret verses 10 through 12? What does it mean when the author writes and attributes to the Son, You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you continue on, and they will all grow old as does a garment. And you will roll them up like a cloak, and they will be changed like a garment, but you are the same, and your years will not end. Well, let's take it step by step. First, the Son's exaltation and enthronement is the guiding context for interpreting the meaning of these three verses in accord with the overall theme and purpose of the Katina. Now, George Card also made another statement that was very profound in the way that he views how the Katina functions in light of Psalm 8 in chapter 2 that we spoke about in verses 6 through 8. This is what he says, The author of Hebrews has no place in his thinking for preexistence as an ontological concept. His essentially human Jesus attains to perfection, to preeminence, and even to eternity. The temporal reference that we get in Psalm 8 and chapter 2, as it's applied to Christ, places him first being lower than the angels, but then in his life and ministry, but then he is lifted up above the angels. And it's remarking on the author's temporal perspective as to apply to Christ that it's not about Christ's pre-existence, but about what happens to him becoming greater than the angels. And so with this contextual framework, the list of Old Testament scriptures functions as a hymn-like celebration, announcing the accomplished salvation through the divinely appointed and throne Messiah King Jesus. Now, as we study chapter one a little bit more, we can find some other allusions that can help us understand why the author would choose to quote Psalm 102 in verses 10 through 12 and apply it to the Son. There's some terminology and some imagery that I think can help us come to a better understanding. Immediately at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 1, we have the language that Jesus, as the Son, he is appointed heir of all things, and it says, through whom also he, God, has given form to the ages. This through whom language we see in John chapter 1, as we've already talked about this weekend. All things came into being through it, or through the word logos, and apart from it, nothing came into being that has come into being. And it was in the world, and the world came into being through it, and the world did not know it. But probably the closest reference would be in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, that there is one God, the Father, 
from whom are all things, and we are for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and we are through him. What this clues us to is that it is very likely the author of Hebrews is using some wisdom language. Jewish wisdom tradition is a series of collections and ways of writing. Uh, We have a number of writings in the Old Testament, such as Proverbs, which presents how wisdom instructs an individual in the way they should live and act as a member of God's people under his rule, which is with the fear of the Lord. And we have the book of Job in the Old Testament that addresses the issue of suffering and God's justice upon a righteous person's life. Or Ecclesiastes, which is an inquiry into the meaning of life and how the wisdom of knowing how to live meaningfully. But there are also some other writings that I want to share with you guys from the intertestamental period. Other Jewish writings that talk about wisdom in similar ways, such as the writings of Sirach, which focuses on wisdom in connection with Torah, or the wisdom of Solomon, which considers the fates of the righteous and the ungodly and presents a vivid description of the nature of wisdom. But in general, wisdom tradition entails an effort to expound the rich diverseness of God's wisdom, and to see how intricately tied to God's activity and his plans it is. At the same time, the ancient writers thought of wisdom not in operating in isolation from the rest of Scripture, but together with it. And you can, we can find strands of wisdom tradition throughout the Old Testament in different books, such as the Deuteronomic history books, the prophets, the Psalms, Song of Solomon, Daniel, And this just shows how pervasive wisdom literature and wisdom tradition was in the writings of the Jewish people. Now, during the intertestamental period, they developed ideas further about wisdom that drew the reader's attention to her preeminence and her infinite utility and inspiring beauty. And so I'd like to paint a, a portrait for the way that wisdom is spoken of in the literature. There are a number of wisdom passages that are very important that talk directly about wisdom. And these are distinct passages within the overall tradition that either personify or they have a description of wisdom or they talk about its purpose. For example, wisdom originates in God. Sirach 24, 2 and 3. In an assembly of the Most High, she will open her mouth and before her power, she will boast. I came forth from the mouth of the Most High and like a mist, I covered the earth. Wisdom resides in heaven. Give me wisdom that sits by your throne and do not reject me from amongst your children. Send her wisdom out from among the holy heavens and from your glorious throne, send her. Wisdom was created in the beginning. The Lord created me, wisdom, as the beginning of his ways. Or before all things, wisdom has been created and understanding of prudence is from eternity. Wisdom is an agent of creation for she, wisdom, is an initiate in the knowledge of God and chooses his works. What is richer than wisdom, which makes all things? Who more than she is the fashioner of things that exist? All of creation is infused with wisdom. She pervades and penetrates all things because of her pureness. Wisdom is identified as God's spirit, for wisdom is a kindly spirit. It will not hold blasphemers free of the guilt of their words, because God is a witness of their inner feelings and a true overseer of their hearts and a hearer of their tongues, because the Spirit of the Lord fills the world, and that which holds all things together has knowledge of what is said. And wisdom is associated with Israel and Torah. Then the Creator of all commanded me wisdom, and he who created me put down my tent and said, 
encamp in Jacob, and in Israel let your inheritance be. In a beloved city as well he put me wisdom down, and in Jerusalem was my authority. All these things, wisdom, are the book of the covenant of the Most High God, a law that Moses commanded us, an inheritance for the gatherings of Jacob. Now, how does that translate then to what we're looking at regarding the Son and Christ? Well, Christ is spoken of in the New Testament as the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1, 22-24 says, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to the called ones, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power and God's wisdom. And then in verse 30, And it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and holiness, and redemption. The New Testament writers, they speak of Christ as the expression of God's wisdom. And we look at the description of the Son in Hebrews chapter 1, in verses 2b through 3a, we find some interesting terms that he is referred to as the reflection, the apagasma of God's glory, the character, the exact representation of his nature. And the son is said to uphold, or this participle pharaoh, and to bear up all things by his powerful word. These are very poetic expressions which lend it to seem like it's a hymn structure. There's a relative pronoun clauses, series of participles, and the language is very poetic. So if the author here is using all of these terms and the expressions that are common to refer to wisdom literature and the way that wisdom is spoken of, then perhaps the son is being spoken of in terms of wisdom here. What's more than that, there is this word, apagasma. This word occurs only once in the New Testament and once in the Old Testament. It occurs in a premier wisdom passage in the wisdom of Solomon in verse 25 through 26 of chapter 7, where it says, For she, wisdom, is a breath of the power of God and an emanation of the pure glory of the Almighty. Therefore, nothing defiled gains entrance into her. For she is a reflection of eternal light and a spotless mirror of the activity of God and an image of his goodness. In verses 10 through 12, there are also some corollary language. This word themaleao, to lay a foundation, is spoken of in Psalm 102 that is quoted in verse 10. We also find that same language about wisdom in Proverbs 3.19. Wisdom God, by wisdom, he founded the earth. Wisdom was involved in the founding of the earth. Similarly, the language that is used of the son being spoken of, that his years will not fail. In Sirach 24, 9, before the age from the beginning, he, God, created me wisdom, and until the age, I will never fail. There are these lexical links here that I think are pointing to us to see wisdom Christology at work in the author's mind. Furthermore, there's some imagery. God made the world or the ages through the sun. Wisdom is said to be an agent in creation. Also, the sun upholds and sustains all things, and wisdom is said to hold all things together. In addition, the sun is seated at God's right hand. Wisdom is said to be seated next to God's throne. So if we add all this up together, interpreting Hebrews 1, 10 through 12, the Son is spoken of as an agent of creation, like wisdom. The Son is said to be the apalgasma, the reflection of God's glory, like wisdom. 
The sun upholds and sustains all things, which is possibly allusion to wisdom 1-7, where wisdom is said to uphold all things. And the sun is seated next to the throne of God. The spatial relationship of the sun's exalted position at God's right hand, it mimics wisdom's position beside the throne of God. And so then to conclude how to understand 1, 10 through 12, given these allusions to the wisdom tradition and the parallels in terminology, the imagery, the motifs, verses 10 through 12 is best interpreted against this background. Therefore, as Christ is the man in whom God appointed to have his creative wisdom dwell, he is seen as the bearer of the whole purpose of creation and the complete embodiment of God's wisdom. And thus, the author speaks of Christ figuratively in protological terms. That means speaking of him as though he's in the beginning, as the one who created the heaven and the earth, as a means of elevating the sun above the status of the angels, attributing to him the preeminent role over the created order. With the wisdom Christology background, understanding that the author's point is to show the enthronement of the son, that he has now become greater than the angels, does not relate to him having a past life of some sort where he was already created before the angels, but that he has now become higher than them due to the exaltation and the honor and glory he's been given at God's right hand. I think this is the way to understand the author's use of Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27 in Hebrews chapter 1. Thank you. Well, that brings this episode to a close. What'd you think? Come on over to restitutio.org and find episode 449, Intertextuality and Interpretation of Hebrews 1. This is actually going to be part one of a three-part series, and I'm really excited about part two and part three, where I interview Jerry directly to ask him all kinds of questions about what he said here and also his other thoughts on specifically verses 10 through 12. So stay tuned for that next week. Also, if you would like to go to this year's UCA conference, please save the date, October 14th to the 16th, and that's going to be in Springfield, Ohio. And if you're inclined to write a paper, to submit a paper, uh, to be considered as one of the presenters for the conference... Uh, You can do that so long as you get it in within pretty much the next week. Uh, July 1st is the deadline for paper submissions, and there's all kinds of details about that at UnitarianChristianAlliance.org for those of you who are curious about the event or about submitting a paper to the event. I'm planning on being there, and I think it's going to be a really great time. So uh, I know registration is not open quite yet, but uh, I believe it will be open very shortly. And once that happens, I will certainly let you know. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you'd like to support Restitutio, you can do that at our website, restitutio.org. I've got a little donate button there. And we'll see you next week. Remember, the truth has nothing to fear.